Lord, as we sing these words, we praise you that we can. We praise you that you have revealed these truths in your word, and we say with all of our soul as a church, all glory be to Christ. We pray that that would be the focus of our lives, and we know that very often it is not. But I pray that we would come as humbled, repentant, confessing sinners, and know that there is secured for us a home in heaven. And Lord, as we come now to the living word, I pray that you will apply this word to our sanctification. I pray that we would weed out the distractions and the sins that cling to our soul and that we would receive the implanted word. May that word now come and settle into our souls. May we become increasingly familiar with what you have revealed in the text of Scripture. And I pray, Father, that that text would change us and grow us, that there would be life, that we would sing the song that we've sung with hope and meaning. All glory be to Christ. And as we've sung as well, Lord, we're humbled to consider that our lives are but a vapor. We are passing through very quickly. May we take account of our lives today before the text that we see. And may we recognize Christ as the hinge of all history, as the Lord of all glory, as the Savior of the sinners. We come as those sinners before you now and we receive the implanted word. By the Spirit of God, teach, instruct, grow, and change us and draw to saving light those for whom the morning star has not dawned in their soul. Bring them to see that light, even today we pray, with all of our hearts, for the glory of your name and the good of your people. Through Jesus we pray, amen. Please be seated. Where was Elijah? Last week we left the student prophets at Jericho searching for him across the Jordan. Had God deposited Elijah somewhere? Could they find him and fetch him back across the river? Elisha knew what the text reveals to us. Chariots of fire had ushered the great prophet into God's presence. So eventually the dejected student pastors returned to Jericho and reported to the prophet who would take Elijah's place, Elisha. But in a manner of speaking, Israel has never stopped looking for Elijah, and with good reason. Think of these words as the very last words of written prophecy that ring out before 400 years of revelatory silence. We read in Malachi 4 and 5, these words end the Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Elijah will come. And he will accomplish spiritual good. Well, everything was not all right. 
on the day the sweet chariot swung low and whisked Elijah away to glory. Think of it. Jezebel was still queen mother, wielding her godless influence over Israel. And her daughter, Athaliah, was just beginning to build up steam as one who would carry this same immorality into the southern kingdom of Judah. Despite all that Elijah had done, Israel remained entrenched in rebellion against Israel. The great prophet was gone, and Israel did not appear to be any better off from his long ministry. So there were many who longed for Elijah to, in a sense, finish his work. The work he left behind on that bitter, sweet day. Remember the, the long journey that he took. He was a man in good shape. There seemed to be so much more life in him and so much more to do in Israel that people wanted him to return across that river and finish what he had started. And they still do. Some Israelites to this day cling to the hope that Elijah's bodily return will put things right. Some Jewish sects place an unoccupied chair at ceremonies where a son of Israel is circumcised. During certain ritual prayers, they leave the front door of the house ajar, inviting Elijah to return. At the Passover meal, some Jews pour a cup of wine and set it aside by itself through the entire lengthy meal. And then at the end of the meal, someone goes and opens the front door. And the family stands around the table in silence and waits for Elijah to come back and drink the cup. We witness this expectation, don't we, in the day of Jesus' death as he hangs on the cross and cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, Eli, Eli, a misunderstanding of what he was saying, but the, the expectation was so readily there among the Jews, what did they say? He's calling for Elijah's return to rescue him and put all things right. No tomb became a shrine to Elijah's memory, we've noted. But he was far from forgotten after his departure in 2 Kings chapter 2. And so our biblical consideration of Elijah's life is not completed in the Old Testament narratives, but takes us right into the New Testament references to this great prophet. And chief among those is the account that we find in Matthew chapter 17. In Matthew chapter 17, we find, first of all, that Elijah attends the transfiguration of Jesus. Verse 1 of Matthew chapter 17, And after six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Now, time references in the synoptic gospels are not common, and so when you find a time reference, it's important to ask, why is it there? Six days intentionally links what happens in chapter 17 with what has taken place in chapter 16. Especially verse 28, where Jesus says to the disciples, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Link that then to the six days later, tying right there with chapter 16 to this event. And all three of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of them make this specific connection. 
So the text does not address why only Peter, James, and John, and it does not identify the mountain. So there's all kinds of ink spilled over that, of which mountain it was, but we're, we're not satisfied that way here. But again, it's on the mountaintop, and while the name is unimportant, a mountaintop experience is very important in God's revelation to his people. I mean, just think of it. Abraham on Mount Moriah. Moses on Mount Sinai. Elijah, many years later, on Mount Sinai. Elijah on Mount Carmel. Joshua on Mount Gerizim. And it goes on and on. So here, Jesus on a mount... We wake up and say, why? What is happening here? It is an important event. Indeed, this mountaintop is a pivotal moment in our knowledge of who Jesus is, in the revelation that the Father has given about the Son. Wasting no time, Matthew begins verse 2 in, in describing that event. Verse 2, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. In this context, transfigured or transformed speaks of a change of appearance. It seems that the inner glory of Jesus in his divine nature radiated through his whole being. His face shone, his clothes shone with this glory. In this drab world, suddenly his eternal glory and splendor shone forth in brilliant display. Jesus did not become someone he never was before in this event. Rather, his true nature as the God of glory breaks out momentarily and reveals itself to the disciples. Verse 3, And behold, there appeared to them also Moses and Elijah talking with him. Notice there the to them. There appeared to them, Moses and Elijah, that is, this dramatic revelation of who Jesus is was designed for the apostles' benefit. As we'll see soon, the event certainly gave Jesus in his human nature tremendous encouragement to carry forward with the mission to the cross. But for the benefit of the disciples, Moses and Elijah are summoned to speak with Jesus. We need to cling to that idea. It's Moses, it's Elijah, at the revelation of who Jesus is. Moses had been with God for nearly 1,500 years. Elijah, for around 850 years. Such a return from heaven is never repeated in all of redemptive history. At least not what we know. So this is a very unique historical moment. And the appearance at this moment of Jesus' transformation, His glory being seen, it is no mistake that Moses and Elijah are here with Him. Moses representing the law of God and Elijah the prophets in salvation history. Together they represent what? They represent the old covenant era. And that old covenant era was now clearly pointing to Jesus Christ and the new covenant that was fulfilled in his blood. Liefeld has 
argued convincingly that this event, above all else, is the revelation of who Jesus is in two ways. In that revelation, Moses serves primarily as a typological figure of Christ. That is, one who comes before Christ that is pointing the way to him and that his ministry is then fulfilled in the ministry of the new covenant with Jesus Christ. So we could go into this at long length, and we'll not do so today, but just touching the surface, Moses led his people out of slavery as the blood of the Passover lamb was slain in the place of Israel's firstborn. As Israel's mediator, Moses stood between God and Israel. And Jesus is the prophesied prophet who came after Moses. God said to Moses in Deuteronomy 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. This may well have been looking to Joshua, but ultimately to Christ. While much more could be said, Jesus is then the prophet who fulfills Moses' intermediatory and redemptive work. But in the Revelation on the Mount, Elijah serves primarily as the eschatological figure, the figure that looks forward to what is yet to come. Elijah's role was to announce the Messianic age as Messiah's forerunner. Now, tag in here to what we've been considering in the weeks previous. Do you remember where was Elijah following the victory on Mount Carmel? We see him running before King Ahab's chariot. He's out there as a literal forerunner to take Ahab back to Jezreel, back to his palace, back to the city, to say what? To say, the covenant has been renewed. Israel is returning to God. And he ran ahead of the chariot to say that and to announce that the king has come, the king who has come now in faithfulness to Yahweh. Well, we know how that turned out. That joy lasted for who knows how many hours and was all over. As Jezebel frightened Elijah away from the city, recaptured her husband's heart in a matter of moments, a conversation or two, and Elijah was heading out of town. But he's not done. And one day we'll run ahead again and announce to God's people that the true King, Messiah, who will reign in righteousness, has come. Think of it again now, this same passage that ends the Old Testament in light of Moses and Elijah on this mountain and what they mean. The last words of the Old Testament, Remember the law of my servant Moses. The statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of his fathers of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. The law of my servant Moses, Elijah the prophet, pointing to the great and awesome day of the Lord that is coming. 
Now, there's a lot more going on here than we can grasp, and there's a lot more going on that we can grasp that we don't have time to really fully consider. But suffice it to say that Moses and Elijah are on this mountain to demonstrate that Jesus is the epicenter and fulfillment of redemptive history. Everything that they accomplished is now finding its fulfillment in what Christ is about to do. What he has been doing and is about to do as he comes to the death that he announces in chapter 16 and to the resurrection that will follow. The Passover with its lamb of sacrifice and the bloody doorposts, leading God's people in the exodus from slavery, smiting the rock, producing water of life, holding aloft the bronze serpent for Israel's healing, the tabernacle's most holy place, the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant, and the blood dripped on that seat. All of this and more is now fulfilled in the person whose glory lit up that holy scene. All of this was always and is now pointing to Christ. Can you imagine that conversation between those three? I mean, if you go back in time, this has got to be one of those spots you want to be at. And to hear what they talked about. All that we know is from Luke chapter 9 and verse 31. Matthew doesn't mention it. But what they discussed, topic-wise, was Jesus' departure. The Greek word is exodus. Think of the connection between Moses, who led the people of Israel out of Egypt, and now the fulfillment of the great exodus that is to take place. That's what they talked about. Everything hinged on his leaving. That would be through his death, to pay the cost of sin for all who put their trust in him and his resurrection to enter again into the presence of the Lord having fulfilled redemption's story. What a thrilling conversation that had to be. Well, the gospel writers Mark and Luke reveal that the disciples were waking up out of a deep sleep. They were terrified, as they did, by Christ's luminous splendor. And Peter was one of those guys who, when unsure about what to do, always spoke. And so he does, verse 4, and said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking. So against some commentators, I, I don't think Peter's suggestion here is steeped in kingdom connotations. Some legitimately take that view. I think it was a simple matter of a mere mortal talking when he should have been holding his tongue. Just simply, this is a time to watch in silent wonder. And he's talking about how he can build tabernacles for guys that don't need tabernacles. They don't need booths. And yes, there are connections to festivals and Israel and the like, but... I think he's just, the mouth is moving and the brain is not engaged. And Matthew brings that out in his own unique subtlety here by the fact that he just gets interrupted. He's he's just totally ignored. This guy is out of his league in the moment and his mouth should be shut. But verse 5, someone is going to speak with great meaning. 
He was still speaking, verse 5, when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. This bright cloud certainly has some connections to the great Shekinah, the glory cloud that shrouded uh, the brilliant light of God's presence that led Israel in the wilderness and filled the tabernacle under Moses and then again filled the temple that Solomon had built. The voice of God delivers the vital word of revelation to the disciples. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This repeats that revelation at Jesus' baptism. Jesus is the eternal Son of God, meaning that in part that He did what the Father did. Moses and Elijah did God's bidding. But the Son's works are the Father's works. They are one in work. And so says the Father, I am well pleased in Him. It's an expression of eternal joy that we can only begin to imagine. But notice that he says to him, says to them, listen to him. Think of this in light of God's self-revelation to Elijah on Mount Sinai. This is in a sense saying, here is the quiet voice. Here is the one who speaks the words that give life eternally. These words are life-giving. Hear my son speak. Over the past century and a half, God's instruction had been to listen to Moses and the prophets. You catch that in Malachi? Do this. Hear these words. Listen Now he says, listen to my son. This is the fulfillment of the ages in the word that this one speaks. Verse 6, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. When they heard the voice of the Lord, they were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise, have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Jesus only, and that was enough. They found in his presence the familiar face that they had come to trust. And they found in their hearts, I'm certain, a new realization of who he was and a refreshed commitment to serve him to the end of their days. But the narrative shifts here now in verse 9. And the significance of the history we've considered can hardly be overstated. But we must leave it and move to verse 9. And as they return, and as they were coming down, returning from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. So there will be a discussion here about Elijah that's particularly pointed in the book of Matthew. But the report of the transfiguration may have fueled belief that Christ's kingdom was now established in its fullness, Such a report would have taken focus away from his pending death, and we'll see that in the subsequent discussion here. More importantly, the event on the mountain was effectual for the disciples who saw it on one level, but it wasn't fully effectual for them. 
and wasn't effectual at all for those who didn't see it until what? Until the resurrection. So hold on to this. When he rises from the dead, then, then this event will make sense. Verse 10, and the disciples asked him, why then do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Let's stop there just for a moment. The Jewish rabbis taught that Elijah would return to restore true worship in Israel. Elijah would also return as a forerunner of the Messianic kingdom. The disciples believed Jesus is God's Messiah, 1616. There's no question about that. But if he's going to be rejected and executed by Israel, how does the coming of Elijah work? How does this even make any sense in this scheme? They are deeply troubled about this conversation of Jesus' death. I mean, Jesus, we, we just saw Elijah, but he has not come to restore justice and true worship. More importantly, if you die, how does that make any sense of Elijah's return to usher in the kingdom? They simply could not make the prospect of Jesus' death square with, well, anything. Anything at all. Verse 11, he begins to help them. He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things, but I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him. But did to him whatever they pleased, so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Verse 11. I'm going to part from some of you, from some commentators here, but let's just throw it out there and say, how do we look at this? Verse 11. He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. I take this to mean that in the future... At some undisclosed time, Elijah will return to earth. I say that for two reasons. That phrase, Elijah does come, is a present tense verb and could be translated, Elijah is right now in the state of coming. Secondly, Elijah will restore all things is a future tense verb. In the future, Elijah will do this. Now that present tense, he is coming, and that future tense, he will restore all things, seems to be a look forward, while at this moment, John's ministry is already over. John the Baptist is dead. When he says Elijah is coming and will restore I believe then that Jesus is saying Elijah will return to lead the charge into a messianic age. Verse 12, however, and this is the significant piece, but I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased, so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands." They understand this to be a reference to John the Baptist, and rightly so. Was John the Baptist the fulfillment 
literally, of Elijah returning. John made it clear that this is not the case. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. I'm not Messiah. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Now we can read this and say, Well, what's happening here is he's just saying he's not Elijah the way they're thinking. That he's literally the man Elijah. And that's a a legitimate interpretation and many would hold it. But I don't think Jesus is by any means contradicting what John said, of course. He's not Elijah. What Jesus is saying is, my forerunner has already prepared the way. John is the one who comes in the prophecy to prepare the way for Messiah. John came, if you will accept it. Jesus says, in the spirit and power of Elijah to perform the very same role. If you will understand, he came in the spirit and the office of Elijah to prepare for Messiah. So John the Baptist partially fulfilled the great Elijah prophecy, but by no stretch of the imagination did John the Baptist restore all things. In my thinking, John was rejected, he was imprisoned, He was executed, and on the day that he died, things looked an awful lot like they looked on the day that Elijah died. There was no restoration that seemed to be happening here. And what happened to Messiah's forerunner is going to happen to Messiah. Jesus makes that clear. They did to him whatever they pleased. They executed him. They took his head off his body because they wanted to. And that's what they're going to do to me in a manner of speaking. I will suffer at their hands. So he too will die. Only the resurrection allowed them to make any sense of any of this. And only the latter revelation of Christ's second coming would make any sense of Elijah coming again. Now, if you're of the mind that he is actually just saying John the Baptist is the full fulfillment of this, I just come back to verse 11 and I come back to John the Baptist restoring all things. We can differ on that point of whether John is the absolute fulfillment of the Elijah prophecy or if there is yet an appearance to come. So what does it mean that if Elijah does return and finalize the role that John the Baptist fulfilled in part during Christ's first coming? I have no idea. We don't have any indication of what that might look like or be. I do not think Elijah is one of the two witnesses of Revelation chapter 11. The reason? Those witnesses are killed and I don't see how a glorified man can be killed Uh, and die. If Moses is the other witness in Revelation 11, that's even easier because he was, he did die and was buried. Uh, How could he reappear and die again? But all of that aside, and a lot of that's just matter of us trying to figure out and understand things that we don't fully see. But as we come back to it, all of that aside, As pertains particularly to Elijah, we do well to consider that everything Elijah did in his long and arduous ministry pointed to and found its ultimate meaning in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's the point. That's the key here. 
The New Testament era in Christ's lordship supersedes and is the culmination of the Old Covenant era. It is on Jesus' death in the place of the sinner, it is on Jesus' resurrection in victory over the grave that God's salvation plan turns. Everything hinges, everything turns, everything is focused there. Everything that came before pointed to that pivotal work that he discussed with Moses and Elijah on the mount. The two disciples walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Remember that passage. He says to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And in that sense, what a heart-wrenching thing it is to think of Israelites today holding a door open for Elijah and to know that they've rejected the Elijah John the Baptist who paved the way to Christ. But in the mercy of God, he's allowed us to see who Jesus truly is. The revelation on the mountain, the revelation that came at his resurrection and the life that we have in him. And one day, this glorious Jesus, we need to focus in and consider the reality that one day we will stand before this glorious Christ. On that day, we will be terrified by the splendor of his person and cower before his impending judgment for our sin and rejection of his grace and lordship. That is one way that we will stand before him or we will find in His glorious presence eternal joy and thanksgiving. Before this glorious presence, it is utter fear, terrified fear, because we stand in our own righteousness. Or we stand before Him as we have sung today, as has been sung, to run into His arms of comfort and grace. The determining factor is how you right now relate to Jesus Christ. How do you see His glory? How do you see His judgment? How do you see His saving grace? This narrative reveals we must trust in who Christ is. Namely, that He is the sinless, eternal Son of God who always pleases the Father. Second, we must trust in Christ departure that he talked about with Moses and Elijah. That is, his substitute sacrifice for sins. All of the sacrificial system pointing to him who stands in the place of the sinner and pays the cost of death for us. And all of that received and accepted by his Father through resurrection and that resurrection, eternal life, and power then given to us. As we embrace this revelation about who Jesus is, we can rejoice with Peter. Oh, how his words changed from that embarrassingly small statement that's just 
ignored to these glorious words that we've considered this morning. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. What we have read today can certainly be seen as a myth. One of those things is just otherworldly and couldn't really happen, and it just makes a point in some way, but it's, it's not history. Peter and the apostles hinged everything on the fact that this happened. This was not a myth. It was not a devised tale. We were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What is he saying in a word? This is the still small voice. Listen to him. In his words, there is life. Has the glorious Savior risen in delight in your inner being? Believers, What a heritage of faith we enjoy. What a heritage of faith. What an otherworldly work of redemption stitched together through the ages by our Savior and culminating in Christ's death and resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins. It is not Jesus stepping forward and saying, you know, I think I'll make this deal up and say that I'm dying for sins. It is Thousands of years of preparation. Preparing us to see the way of the Lord, stitching it all together from above as He worked through people who passed through this world like a mist. Connecting one to the next to the next. And without blushing and with great joy, bringing up to that mountain a guy that had been with the Lord for 1,500 years. And another guy that had been with the Lord for 850 years. Because they're not writing the story. He is. And he says in their presence and to us, this is my beloved son, hear him. So I again ask, has that glorious Savior risen in delight in your inner being? Someday we may meet Elijah, perhaps learn at his feet. But that wonderful meeting will not compare to meeting the Savior that Elijah served well before he or we ever met him in person. Until then, may we labor every day of our lives to listen to him until we listen to him in his glorious presence. That's the end for the believer. That's the future. Let's bow. Lord, we pray that you would be increasingly 
making us worthy of it. We know that we will never be worthy of entering your presence in our own strength. But I pray that we would persistently hear your voice and obey your truth, that we would find it in the written words of Scripture and strive to live in obedience and to be transformed from one stage of glory to the next as we apply what you have revealed and as we strive to display the image of Christ in our lives. Lord, we feel very small as we observe this mountain from a distance. We know that we fall short of your glory and that we are but a mist that passes. There is no greatness and no goodness in us on our own. But we praise you that you've made us in the image, in your image, and that you have granted through the work of redemption that Jesus has accomplished the salvation of your people. And I pray, Father, that we'd find great hope in that today. For those who know not Christ, I pray that you would work in their heart to know deep in their soul that standing before this glorious Christ in their own strength and by the basis of their own works and their own existence is terrifyingly foolish. I pray that you draw them to the only Savior there is and that they would come in saving faith to the one to whom the law and the prophets pointed and that together we may rejoice around your throne in all that you've accomplished in redemptive history. And the fact that we, in our little spot on the line, can tie into that great story. Father, we pause here to give you thanks and to praise your name for your goodness to us in Christ, in whose name we pray.